Hey everybody, welcome to the Calhoun Ward Living Histories Podcast. I am your host, John Phillips, a member of the Calhoun Ward. Let's dive in and learn more about our ward members. My name is Terry Barlow. I was born August 4th, 1945 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, at that time, my father was either in school getting an accounting degree or he was working as a milk picker-upper from the farms around Hattiesburg with his father, Archie Roland Barlow Sr. Um, they, um, so at that point, dad was, he was getting a degree in accounting when I was born and then he finished sometime around 1950 and then he got called back into the Air Force. He had been in the Air Force in World War II, shot down over France, uh, smuggled into Spain through the French underground, came back home, married his uh, sweetheart, and uh, a year and a couple of months later, I came along. Um, mom, and, mom and dad, my father was Archie Roland Barlow Jr. My mother was Roxy Aline Morgan. She was 15 of 16 children born on the farm in Jones County, Mississippi just north of Hattiesburg. Um, I have a brother who's uh, 15 months younger than me and a sister who's 13 years younger than me. Uh, our sister was born with cerebral palsy. She's now in a, in a home in Lafayette, Georgia, where she's being taken care of by people who are getting paid to, to do that, to take care of her. Um, she's a bright uh, person, but uh, I'd say she's probably on a four or five year old level if you're, if you're talking to her and trying to get uh, answers out of her. Um, so um, dad went back into the Air Force. Uh, he tried to get back in as an uh, officer uh, because he had a degree and the Air Force said, we'll take you as an officer if you can pass the physical. It turned out he had uh, calcium deposits on his neat on his uh, heel and they would only give him tech sergeant which is what he left the, the war with when he got out in uh, 4044. Um, so uh, we in 12 years of schooling I was in eight different schools because we moved around every two or three years. The longest I was in any one school was three years in Starkville, Mississippi. Um, growing up, Dad was stationed in uh, Denver, Colorado, Lowry Air Force Base from 1951 to 1952. Then we went back home to Petal, Mississippi, where we had a home. Uh, he then got called to Korea. He decided to go for one year, and uh, the, the, uh, we lived with, my, with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Barlow, who were my grandparents on the Barlow side. Um, they, um, they were probably a good part of my disciplinary uh, growing up when Dad was away. Of course, Mom was there, and Tom was there. Um, then um, we moved to Shepherd Air Force Base, Wichita Falls, Texas. He was there for a couple of years. We moved to uh, Alexandria, Louisiana. He was there for a couple of years. Uh, and then I graduated from Biloxi High School. In, in four years of high school, I was in three different high schools. Uh, I was in Bolton High School in 1961 and 62, my uh, sophomore and junior years. And then I graduated from Biloxi High School um, 
1963. Um, we had a good life. It, I would classify our family as lower middle class because Master Sergeant didn't make a lot of money back in those days, but, but we always knew we were loved. Our, our parents did all the things that they needed to do to keep us you know, active in school and, and, uh, and learning stuff. I, was, I started playing the trumpet at uh, 12 years of age in the seventh grade and uh, continue to do that to this day. There was two years in the Navy that I didn't have a trumpet and didn't play. But uh, for 62 years now, I've been playing the trumpet, and, well, and that's, that's my real hobby. That's what I really enjoy doing. Um, so that's about it for, for our growing up to the point I graduated from, uh, from high school. Moving around a lot. I, I didn't see, it didn't seem to hold me back. I enjoyed meeting new friends, saying goodbye to old friends. Um, it was always, it was always an adventure to me. And uh, the Air Force took good, pretty good care of us. When we moved from place to place, we didn't have to lift a finger. The Air Force did all that, that stuff, moving from place to place. Um, I do remember in, in my junior, in my sophomore and junior years in high school, I started getting into building rockets. I wanted to know what caused rockets to get off the, we're talking about two inch long pieces of cardboard as the, as the fuselage of the rocket and then stuffing potassium nitrate and sugar in there and lighting it and see if it can get off the ground. And it, it, it never would until one day, I went to the base library in, in uh, Alexandria, Louisiana England Air Force Base, and I saw an Army diagram of what the inside of a rocket looks like, and it had a hole all the way down through the center of the, of the, the uh, fuel. So we built our rockets, and then we took a nail, and we pushed it right down through the center, and we lit it, and they started getting off the ground. It, instead of burning slowly end to end, it now burned, you know, sideways, out, you know, in a cylinder. And uh, that, was, that was really interesting. I do remember there was three of us that got together. Greg Robinson, who's a black kid, and uh, Stephen Potamia and I bonded together and we started building these rockets. And at, at England Air Force Base, the enlisted housing was on one side of the field and there was 500 yards. And then the officer's housing was over here. So we had this huge level field to launch our rockets in. But uh, Stephen Potamia went on to, uh, to teach physics in uh, University of Central Florida. And I talked to him a couple of years back. Um, but that was, you know, the sort of fun we had. Besides, you know, I was always interested in band and playing the trumpet, and that was, that was good, good fun. But, uh, but playing, playing with rockets, that was, that was my real driving motivation when I was a junior and a sophomore. And uh, then all that went away when we moved to Bloxy because I didn't have anybody that was interested in rockets, so I didn't, didn't pursue that. But uh, anyway, that's, that's my growing up experience is moving around and messing around with rockets. In 1950, Grandma and Grandpa Morgan, my mother's parents, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. They had eloped on April 1st, 1900. 
They had 16 kids, all born on the farm, and never a doctor, always a midwife. Um, my mom was 15th of those 16 kids. Now, two of them died in infancy. One of them died in high school, but the rest of them all lived into their late 70s, early 80s. Um, so hopefully we've got some good genes. And my mother passed away in uh, 2016. She was two months shy of her 93rd birthday. Um, she was the last one in her family of her siblings to pass away. My father died in the year 2001. He um, drove himself to the hospital in 1988, thinking he, had, he was having a heart attack. And uh, he, in fact, had um, the doctors did a quintuple bypass on his heart. He was. He survived three wars. He was in country Vietnam, he was in country Korea, he was shot down over France in World War II, and hepatitis C took his life because the blood that they used to prime the pump for his heart um, procedure was tainted with hepatitis C, and that was the beginning of the end for Dad. He died uh, at the age of 77. Otherwise, he would he would probably live longer. Um, Mom died of old age. She just, she, there was nothing wrong with her. She survived having her hip broken and got ambulatory again and was walking around and could do just about anything, but she just started sleeping longer and longer and finally she just didn't wake up. And as far as we know, there was nothing wrong with her so far as medical conditions or cancer or any of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, we, and you know, through all of this, through all the moving around and uh, knowing all the cousins and you know we got a hundred cousins and stuff from all these you know 11 13 children that lived and had their own kids and you know there there are grandkids running around now that I don't even know because my peers are you know they're all my age and there's two generations below them that I'm just now trying to catch up with and that's one of the hobbies that I have is talking to people that I knew 50 years ago as a child and trying to find out what their descendants are like nowadays. And I get some enjoyment out of doing that. I started playing the trumpet in the seventh grade, uh, Starkville High School, Starkville, Mississippi. And uh, I stayed with the trumpet and in the band through all of the other moves we made Startville, Alexander, Louisiana, Biloxi High. It, in Biloxi High, I did do a solo performance and got a superior. Um, I played uh, Bugler's Holiday. And what was really interesting was I thought it was difficult. So I'm, I played my solo in front of the judges and uh, felt you know, pretty proud of myself. And then the drum major in the band gets up, he's a trumpet player too, and plays something twice as hard as I played and just knocked it out of the park. And I thought, hmm, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I went, as I got into college, I was in the Ole Miss band for a year and a half. I, at the end of my third semester, I said, that's it. I can't, it take, took a lot of time. We were, we were practicing one hour during the school day, and then sometimes for football games, two hours at night. 
and uh, it just got to be such a burden that I said, that's it, I'm, I'm getting out. And I still continue to play the trumpet, but only on my own. Um, but, uh, no, I, I had to, <laughs> it was either my studies or, or the trumpet, and I had to get out of the band. And, uh, that, was, that was probably a wise choice. Now, I did, I did continue to play the trumpet um, until I got into the Navy. The two years I was on aircraft carrier, I didn't have a trumpet. And so there was two years. Then one day, I was, on, I was now assigned to a destroyer. I was a navigator on a tin can, and we pulled into La Spezia, Italy. I put $50 in my pocket cash and walked ashore thinking I would find a $50 trumpet. And by golly, I did. I found a $50 trumpet and then I started, when the ship was at sea, I would sit on the fantail of the ship, pointing out toward the wake and play and practice. So nobody behind me could hear me because <laughs> there was a roar of the engines and this you know, spray coming up. And so that's when I finally got back into uh, playing the trumpet in the Navy and then just never stopped after that until, well, Till today. <laughs> so, the, the one thing I'm proud about in high school, I was an average student, but because I was interested in figuring out the internals of rocket motors, I started learning chemistry before I actually took chemistry. Chemistry is the only class I made straight A's in. The rest of them I was B's and C's. Uh, I'm just an average guy, but boy, I could, I could really know my uh, symbols and valences when it came to chemistry and uh, it was it was a piece of cake going through chemistry because I'd already done all the studying that I needed to do to understand the internal workings of a, of a rocket and I was always interested in science and at one point I kept a scrapbook of all the news articles having to do with the space race Sputnik, Vanguard, you know satellites that we put up and this sort of thing and somewhere along the way, I got rid of that scrapbook. Nowadays, it would be really a, a treasure to, to look back over. Uh, yeah, we were the, that was back in the days when the Americans and the Russians were trying to be, beat each other into space. And the, the joke was back in those days that the Americans were gonna send a man up into space as soon as they can find one to fit inside a, a grapefruit-sized uh, ball, <laughs> which, which was the first satellite that we put up. Well, you know, other than mom and dad, you know, our, our, um, my father's father and mother lived with us from 1951 on. They moved to halfway through dad's uh, stationed in, station in uh, Denver, Colorado. He brought them to Colorado. They lived with us. And from that point on, they always lived with us until the day they died. Um, so I remember when Dad would go overseas, my grandfather was was the man I looked up to, and he was he was a man about my stature. He couldn't have been more than five foot eight tall, and probably didn't weigh more than 140 pounds. But he was very strong, um, and he was a religious man. He had um, most of his life he had been a teacher an itinerant teacher. He'd teach a year at one school and move to another school. He'd live with a, a parent or, or the parents of one of the students. He just moved around a lot. This was in 
we're talking 1920s, 1930s. And uh, he, he once told me that he had read the Bible cover to cover. And he would tell me stories about things that happened in the Bible. And uh, I think that was probably the first time where I started hearing about religion was from my grandfather. Now, my father was not so religious, but um, he was a, my father was a good man. When he came back from the war, he didn't want any discord. He didn't want to study war anymore. He was a peacemaker. He would go out of his way to put the kibosh on any dis disagreements or, or arguments. A, a really strong, hard-working fellow. Uh, Mom was very... Um, she was very limited in her horizons in that she had been raised on the farm and spoiled by the other kids because she was young, the, the next to the youngest. And, um, but she, uh, mom, to her credit, took care of my sister from the day she was born till the time she was in her mid-80s, you know, doing everything for my sister, taking care of all of her needs. Um, so she, she made a really big sacrifice in her life. Um, but yeah, Grandpa was, was my, uh, the man I looked up to when Dad wasn't there. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about James Terrell Morgan, my mother's father, but I do understand that he was a 32nd degree Mason, and um, you can imagine the time in his life trying to deal with 13 kids and getting, getting them to help with the cattle and the garden and, uh, you know, all the other things that you had to do to run a farm and keep those kids going. The, uh, one of the interesting things is the oldest girl in that family uh, moved into Hattiesburg and got a house in the city. She was a seamstress, but all those other kids came through her house on their way into life. Uh, she, was, she was their new mama once they got out of high school and had to do something other than live on the farm. So she was really their mentor and their pathway into, into life to get them a head start to getting into uh, the big city, you know, Hattiesburg. My senior year in high school is where uh, things started to change for me. You know, like, like I mentioned, I was an average student and as the son of a master sergeant in the Air Force, I had low ambition. I had no desire to do anything other than keep the status quo. I had no clue what I was going to do after high school. I figured I would get a job in Biloxi working, you know, doing something. Uh, having totally no idea what was out there or what I could do. Um, but one day, a fellow trumpet player came up to me, and this was probably late in the year, probably January, February of our graduating year, and he said, Terry, I'm going into the Navy program. They're going to pay my way through college. I'm going to go take a test. Would you go to the guidance counselor at the high school and sign up for the same test and I'll drive you up there and we'll take the test together. So I said, sure, yeah, I got nothing better to do. So we go up there, this is in Hattiesburg, we're, we're graduating from Biloxi and we're going up to Hattiesburg and um, the test was timed. There were four parts to the test and it was timed. And I came out of that test 
And Gary said he thought he did pretty good on the test. And I said, Gary, I never finished any part of that test. And uh, come to find out later on, he failed and I passed. Um, then, so now I had the opportunity to go to college, free ride, books and tuition paid and $55 a month, thanks to the Navy. Uh, which my dad, of course, couldn't afford. He couldn't afford to put me through through college. Um, so Gary Robertson got me started on my new adventure in life. Um, so I, I applied. The Navy sends you a list of schools that they have Navy ROTC units at, and you're supposed to put down one through ten what your preferences are. Well, Ole Miss was number one for me. And at, at that time, I would be entering in September of 63 as a freshman at Ole Miss. The year before was when James Meredith entered, and there were riots and marshals and all kinds of you know, things going on that were not uh, conducive to study. <laughs> and so the population at Ole Miss was way down. It was, there were less, that year that I in, uh, started at Ole Miss, there were less than 4,000 people on the campus. Today, there are 22,000 plus on that campus. Anyway, so the, the, we went through the Navy program uh, every, after each year in college, we had to serve a six-week cruise, they called it, for the Navy. The first, the, the first cruise after my freshman year was we boarded the USS Essex. I think it was in Norfolk. We went to England, Copenhagen, um, France, got to see Paris, got to see Copenhagen, got to see Portsmouth, England. Um, then we came back and you're, during that time you're studying about the Navy and what all it takes to, to be a midshipman. Then uh, after my sophomore year, you spent three weeks in Little Creek, Virginia with the Marines. Then they put you on a flight, fly you overnight to Corpus Christi, Texas, where you get an indoctrination into the Air Navy. And there we had four one-hour hops in a T-34 double-seat, single-engine prop plane doing aerobat aerobatics, and I loved that. That was fun. I wanted to fly from that, from that time on. Um, then uh, your, after your junior year, you spent another six weeks on a Navy ship. This time they sent me to Long Beach, California on a tin can, on a destroyer. And because I changed from electrical engineering in my third semester to the School of Business, I lost a lot of hours. And so I had to pay for one semester on my own. So that cruise, after my junior year, I was saving all my money. I wasn't going ashore. I wasn't doing anything I didn't have to do because I was hoarding my money. Uh, so consequently, I didn't graduate until January of 68. Um, and uh, got a commission as an ensign in the Navy. I wasn't a swimmer. And here I was going to the Navy. So I thought, well, you know, I'd like to fly, but I think what I'll do is I'll go to the fleet first and spend a couple of years there and then apply to flight school. Well, I got on the carrier and I had all kinds of fun 
uh, eventually the, the idea is you work your way up to the officer of the deck or you're in charge of the aircraft carrier on the bridge and you report to the captain only. And uh, you, you're on a three-man watch. Uh, there's an officer of the deck, the junior officer of the deck, and officer of the watch. And I worked my way up as junior officer of the deck the captain one day, I, I was responsible for putting out the radio telephone signals to the rest of the ships around us, telling them what the carrier's going to do. We're usually in the middle, and the, there's a circle of ships around us. Uh, so one day, the captain turns to me and he says, do Bravo Corbin 270. So I pick up the radio telephone and I tell the other ships, Bravo Corbin 270, we're fixing to turn to 270. We're going to leave you guys to do whatever you're, you're doing. And, uh, and then the captain turns to me and says, execute that. And I turned to the captain and I said, Captain, that's not an executable signal. It's just information to the rest of them. And the captain looks over at the navigator. Navigator's lieutenant commander. Lieutenant commander's going like this. Which means I'm right. <laughs> and as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I said, is that right? I start looking through the code book. Yeah, there it is. It's an information signal only. I was right. Golly. Right after that, I become officer of the deck. And I'm in charge of the whole ship. Engineering, uh, turning into the wind to launch aircraft, gathering aircraft, you know, re retrieving the aircraft, uh, talking to all the ships around us. And that was fun. When everything, when everybody on the watch knew what they were doing, and I was giving, uh, you know, telling the helmsman what to do. Come right to 270, you know, turn into the wind, you know, figure out where the wind is, you know, you got to do all this kind of stuff. That was more fun, and I was 24 years old. And uh, okay, so anyway, on this, uh, on the carrier, on the Wasp, we had, we were first home ported out of Boston. We had gone to the Mediterranean for three months. We'd come back and we'd messed around in the Atlantic and then we'd spent a little time in the Caribbean. We came back, they called us back to the Mediterranean for four months and then we come back to the States. I'd been on the carrier for two years and I thought, it's time to change ships. So I called my detailer. This is the man that's supposed to uh, give you orders, uh, you know, to the officers. And I said, I've been to the Mediterranean twice now. Can you give me on a ship that's probably not going very far or, you know, not spending a lot of time at sea? And the guy said, yeah, I'll, I'll fix you up. So he sent me orders as a navigator on a destroyer that was sitting in dry dock. I'm thinking, how easy can that be, a destroyer sitting in dry dock? And I'm the navigator. i got to tell them where to go. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> So, I report aboard in late February. This was probably 70, 71, 70, 70. And five days later, they float that ship out and we go to the Mediterranean for six months. <laughs> so, the Navy does have a sense of humor. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, um, I enjoyed being a navigator, but I didn't know a whole lot about navigation. It was my quartermasters, the men under me, that really knew what was going on, and I learned a little bit from them. Then, um, about that time, I fell in love with this young lady up in uh, 
D.C., that I met in D.C., and we plan on getting married. Well, our plans to get married are underway, and one night in port on the destroyer, I get awakened by the radio officer who says, Mr. Barlow, you've got orders to Vietnam. And I'm thinking, why couldn't you wait till the morning to tell me this? Why did you wake me up in the middle of the night? Anyway, I said, you know, I signed up for this. I got to go. So anyway, my orders were to go to Coronado, California, learn the Vietnamese language, and then go help them fight a war in Vietnam. And 24 and a half years old, what am I going to tell them about fighting a war when I've never been in one myself? Anyway, so we, Liz and I get married. We go to visit her parents. We eloped. Uh, we visit her parents in Morristown, New Jersey. Then we come back through Norfolk and spend the night at the chief engineers. We were good buddies. And uh, he said, your detailer called. I want you to call him. So I call my detailer. My detailer says, uh, I've got too many people going to Vietnam. Can I change your orders? And I say, why not? Yeah, sure. So he says, I'm sending you to Amphibian, Amphibious Warfare School with the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia. Now this worked out perfectly because my fiance, my wife, was going to school in D.C. at American University. And Quantico is right down the road south of, of D.C. So it all worked out really good at that particular point in time. Um, I spent six months in an Amphibious Warfare School in Quantico three Navy officers and a hundred Marine Corps officers, some who had been to Vietnam two and three times. Um, fish out of water. I had no idea what I was doing there, but um, it did tack a, another year onto my four years of obligated service, so I now have five years to serve. Um, my last duty station in the Navy was Am Comfibron 6, Commander Amphibious Squadron 6. I reported, I was the intelligence officer reporting to the man who was in charge of the entire amphibious squadron, and there were several squadrons in Little Creek and Norfolk. We were on a variety of different uh, landing ships, LSDs, LPDs, that sort of thing. Um, I, I didn't really do a whole lot. I was a glorified librarian. I was keeping track of all these top secret pubs at told us which beaches we could land on in the world and which ones we couldn't, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but it was, it was fun. Um, but I could see that uh, there was no career for me in the, in the Navy. So after five years and two months of active duty, I resigned my commission and went it back into civilian life. Um, now all my buddies in the Navy are commanders, lieutenant commanders, captains retired and pulling down the big bucks. Uh, anyway, so uh, that was my, uh, I got to see a lot of the world. We, we pulled into places like Antalya, Turkey, Izmir, Turkey, uh, Goldchuk, Turkey, Copenhagen, Norway. We got our blue nose card. The, the captain on the carrier turned the carrier. We came out of Oslo Harbor, and he said to the navigator, how far, how close are we to the Arctic Circle? And the, the the navigator says, not very far. He said, let's go get our blue nose card. So we went north of the Arctic Circle, turned around and came back. And it, the ship's uh, printing office printed up some little cards. 
and says, you have been north of the Arctic Circle. I've still got that card. Um, but yeah, we went to the Caribbean, um, Barranquilla, South uh, Colombia, Caracas, uh, Venezuela, all through the Caribbean, uh, Puerto Rico, Vegas, um, Hamburg, Germany, Portsmouth, England, um, Copenhagen. We've been to Copenhagen three times. And uh, Tunisia, we pulled into a port in Tunisia. I'm not sure if it's Tunis or, or what, but uh, that was my Navy career. I enjoyed every minute of it. Took a lot of pictures and saw a lot of the world, but uh, it was time to do something different. Uh, so that consequently leads into my career. When I got out of the Navy, Liz and I moved to Atlanta. And uh, I went after a couple of jobs that didn't, didn't pan out more than a couple of weeks each. I went into a, an employment service and I told the guy, I said, find me a job in computers, data processing. And he said, what experience do you have? And I said, none. And uh, he said, well, you know you're crazy. I said, yeah, I know that. Uh, find me a job. <laughs> so he shuffled some papers on his desk and said, you need to talk to the John Harlan Company. They're check printers. They love uh, Army, Army and Navy officers. You know, they've come out of the service. And so uh, I got hired. The man that hired me, his name was Calvin Cross. He hired me and I went through a, a bunch of tests to get this job at the John Harlan Company. Anyway, so I was there for two years uh, in data processing. We had a big, huge machine that had 64K of memory. We thought that was just the living in. And uh, punch cards, everything was run off of punch cards. You wrote your programs on punch cards and fed them through the machine. Anyway, a couple of years at, uh, doing that, and the boss pulled me in one Friday night after everybody else had left and said, I need your resignation letter. And I said, well, let me think about it. He said, no, you don't understand. You don't have a choice. Um, so I sat down and I wrote out a resignation letter. Now, I'm still talking to my buddies, you know, that were there with me. And they said, the boss came in on Monday morning saying, Barlow has resigned. Barlow has resigned. I, uh, they all knew. They, they knew I hadn't had resigned under duress. Anyway, so I'm looking for another job, and I go into another employment service near Buckhead, and I'm sitting there waiting to be interviewed, and in walks Calvin Cross, the man that had hired me at John Harlan Company. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm looking for a job. He said, well, I've got one for you. He says, we need a plaster shop foreman in Calhoun, Georgia. And he had moved, in the meantime, he had moved to Calhoun, and he hired me a second time. And so I started to work right down the road from where the church is now at Harvest and Walker. It's, now it's concrete. There's nothing there. It's all been leveled, the plants. So um, I'm now a plaster shop foreman and, and making pretty good money because that was a place to work in Calhoun in 1975. Um, <clears throat> that's when I moved here, May of 75. Um, of course, I had been divorced the year before. Uh, my first marriage only lasted just shy of four years. 
So I'm working at uh, from 1975 to 1979. I'm working at the John at the uh, Harbison Walker Refractories in Calhoun, Georgia. And then one day in August of 79, two sister missionaries knock on my door. And when they introduce themselves, they say, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They also say, we're known as the Mormons. When I heard the word Mormon, you know, I just sort of steeled up. And I thought, mm, that's not something I want to get involved with. So I sent them on their way. Well, they went on down the road and somewhere in the next couple of days they ran into Twyla Reese who is Caitlin Bohannon's mother. She knew me and she said to those missionaries she said I know Terry Barlow I I know he's interested in genealogy you go back and talk to him about genealogy well they came back, but I wasn't there. They left the little genealogy pamphlet stuck in my door. And uh, I was living by myself. And so that day I come home, I see the pamphlet. It's got the missionary's name on it. I go into the, my apartment and I thought, these girls can't be more than 22, 23 years old. What are they going to hook me into that I don't want to be hooked into? So... Um, they called me the next day and said, uh, we'd, we'd like to come by and talk to you about that genealogy. I said, sure, come on. <clears throat> so, uh, they come in to my apartment. I've got some soft music playing on the radio in the background. won't disturb us. They said, we're going to talk about holy things. Would you mind turning off the radio? I said, sure, no problem. So they started talking to me about Joseph Smith. They said, do you believe that a young boy could see Jesus Christ and God the Father? And I said, it's possible. I'm sure it's possible. They said, we'd like you to read this book. I said, can you read this book or parts that we have marked? And I said, sure, not a problem. Well, you have to understand, at this point in my life, our, our uh, Harbison Walker was on strike. There were, all I had to do was go in at midnight and guard the building. There were two men in one building and me and another guy in the fab plant where I worked. And uh, the picketers were outside the fence, outside the property, um, trying to get higher wages. So at midnight, I would take my little folding chair and set it on the front porch, which wasn't very big. And it was August, nice night. I'd say a little prayer. I'd, I'd not prayed a lot in my, family, in my, you know, Baptist background. So I said a little prayer. I want to know if this is true. And I'd read the Book of Mormon, the parts that they had marked. And I felt like, Every time I read it, I felt like somebody is putting air into my lungs and my lungs are expanding. I can't stop this feeling. Every night, I do this for three or four nights in a row, reading the Book of Mormon. And I thought, this is, this is really something I've never experienced before. So about the fourth, fifth night reading the Book of Mormon, I'm walking through the plant, checking things out, and I'm saying to myself, this has got to be a sign. 
that I'm supposed to join this church. And uh, back up a minute. My brother had joined the church three years before in Florida. Totally separate. Totally different. You know, we weren't even in great communication back in those days. And uh, so the missionaries come back to, to my apartment and said, what what did you think about the Book of Mormon? I said, there's something going on here. I made a, a list of questions and then a list of things that I wanted to go back and reread. And they said, uh, well, the next thing for you to do is come to, come to church, see what we're all about. I said, okay, I'll be there Sunday. So we go to the Rome Ward. Uh, this was August 12th, 1979. And they introduced me to this uh, young lady and her daughter, Debbie Chapman and her daughter, Keisha. And, uh, and so um, I investigate the church. I see the people that are talking from the pulpit. And I, I'm impressed. These people have their act together. I said, if this church, and I was looking at uh, Robert Lee Boyce, who was a bishop. Or was he? No, he was bishop later. His uh, bishop Youngblood was the bishop that was there when we joined the church. Anyway, so Debbie was being born, was being born, was being baptized on August 12th. The next Sunday, I was baptized. Then she invites me to her house for supper. She's living across town with her brother and sister and her daughter. And so she invites me to supper. We eat supper. I, I eat supper. Then she and I go into the living room and we start talking about this new religion that we've both found. And um, I think... Straighten it out. Okay. Um... Of course, missionaries had been teaching me also. And unbeknownst to Terry and I both, we didn't know each other, they were playing matchmaker. And, but they didn't talk to uh, either one of us about the other one, not really. And so that night at the church in Rome, because it wasn't a church in Calvin, at the time, branch all work, um, I was very excited to go in the church. I'd had some spiritual experiences the same time that he was taking his discussions. I was taking the discussions too. And they, they would come and visit me at work. I worked in the hospital, I'm a nurse. And the missionaries would come by and leave little notes and say sweet little things to me, you know, that you can, you know, we're, we're so happy to know you and the Lord loves you and things like this. It all started one Saturday, one Sunday afternoon when my daughter and I had been washing the car and we'd been laying out in the sun and we were in our bathing suits. And the missionaries come walking up, thank goodness, it was sister missionaries. And they said to me, um, we'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. We had some very important things to talk to you about. Could we come in and talk? And I said, well, actually, this isn't a good time. We've been washing the car up. We need a shower. And can you come back another day? And they said, well, how about Monday, which is the next day? And I said, sure, sure. That's fine. So they started to leave. They said, we need to tell you something. I said, okay. Um, we were praying this morning, and we were shown where to go, who you are, where you live, and that you, you, won't, you need this when you heard it. 
cool but really I was thinking that's the neatest thing I've ever heard because I had been praying to find somewhere that my daughter and I could go to church we had gone to every church in Calhoun trying to find a place to be and feel comfortable and raise my daughter um, my ex-husband we had divorced and then he'd been killed so he was out of the picture which was a very good thing um, so the missionaries came over on that Monday night and started teaching and what they taught me my first discussion was about the celestial kingdom. They knew that my mother was dead, and my father, and that she had died when I was a little girl, and then I was very close to my family. And, and um, they said, do you believe that you can be together again as family? And I said, I don't know. I've always thought that I would see my mom again. But the preachers that I, in my church, Presbyterian church, they said we'd just be angels flying around, serving. I said, so what you're telling me makes sense, makes total sense. Why would we be together as families if we're not going to be together in heaven? So these were the things that, that played in my mind and praying out loud for the first time. And um, the missionaries started talking about, we, um, we would like to see you join the church. Well, my sister was taking the um, discussions with me and I thought she's going to join the church and I might just do what she does but I'm going to see how it goes. So they came and they taught a lesson and Dion, they challenged her to baptism, my sister Dion. And she says, no, I, I've decided I don't think I want to join. It's too restrictive. I've got too much of life to live. I don't want to be, you know, just be able to do these certain things that you're talking about, giving up coffee and giving up this and that and the other. Well, I was um, contemplating all of this. The missionary said, gone home and so later that night I just couldn't sleep I couldn't think about anything else it was just the, the whole thing about the church and how much I needed it and how good we felt my little girl when we would go to other churches checking them out she would be scared to death of the preachers they were yelling and screaming and jumping over the pulpit and doing all kind of crazy things and when we went to the Mormon church which of course we don't say Mormon now but she just crawled up in the seat right next to me. She was four years old, and she was just like, wow, this is cool. So I knew, I knew that this was the right thing for me to do. So I called the missionaries. I didn't even look to see what time it was. It was probably around 11, 11.30. And I said, can I be baptized? And they said, of course you can. I said, soon, tomorrow? They said, why don't we do it next Sunday? And I said, okay, that sounds good. And in the background, I was hearing this weird noise. Can you, can you, can you, can you? And I thought, what are you doing? And they said, oh, we're jumping up and down on the bed. We're so happy. <laughs> so meanwhile, they were still teaching him, and they asked him to come and to investigate the church, knowing that was enough for my baptism. So that's where we met. And the next Sunday, um, well, some other things happened along the line. We went to the fair, mm -hmm. and I, my, my heart was just pounding when I was around him. Um, I was taking blood pressures at the hospital tent, and he came up to get his blood pressure taken. So I put the cuff on, and we were talking, and I blew it up, and wrote down his blood pressure for him, and we just started talking about the world, and the, the things that we had been through, and the missionaries, and all this. And a friend of mine came over and said, uh, are you through with him? And I said, why? She said, look at the line behind him. <laughs> So I said, bye, see ya. You know, of course, he wanted me to go and ride rides with him. And I thought, well, I can't really do that. I'm supposed to be here. 
So a really good friend of mine comes up, and she to this day reminds me of this all the time. She said, you want to be with him? And I said, I feel like I want to be with him. I think this may be somebody special. She said, go, I'll take care of everything. So we go, and we act silly, we ride rides, and he keeps saying, I'm scared, I'm scared, and all this silly stuff. Anyway, he drove me home. I had my own car, but he drove me home. And we sat in my living room and talked till 3 o'clock in the morning about our lives and about what we had just gone through and about how we were so excited to change the way we live. I know, I know he probably did the same thing I did. I went and threw out the coffee and threw out the liquor and whatever else was in my apartment and changed my life right then. I didn't crave anything else that I'd ever done. He didn't either. It was just amazing. And so he goes home and he goes to work and I go to work and we both see each other that night and we say, I'm so tired, I haven't had much sleep. <laughs> but we couldn't stop being around each other. We just, we somehow knew that something special was going on. So he says, why don't we go on a picnic up in the mountains? We'll take Keisha with us and we'll have a day of it. And I said, oh, that sounds great. So he um, drives a blue Celica, yeah, a Toyota, and pulls up and we climb in with him and we go off and we have a picnic up at Grassy Mountain. It's a beautiful place where the trees grow in like arches and there's a path to a beautiful pond. Anyway, we spend the day there and it's just wonderful. We pack back up and we're leaving. Keisha falls asleep in the back seat, and he's driving along the top of the mountain, and he pulls the car over. Now I'm used to boys pulling the car over and have to go to the bathroom. So I you know, look straight, <laughs> straight ahead, so I'm not watching what he's doing. But he's picking flowers. And he comes back, and he sits down, and he hands me the flowers, and he says, It's either love or indigestion. <laughs> he, says, oh, he says, I think I'm in love. Or it's indigestion. Of course, we both started laughing. And then, but about a night or two later, he proposed, and we'd known each other two weeks. And uh, we stayed chase and uh, went to the Salt Lake Temple and were married for time and all eternity. A year and a day after I was baptized, August 20th, 1980. So we were pretty much by ourselves when we went out there because we didn't have any friends or family who were in the church except for Tom and he didn't come. But we had really close friends in the church that we had made and they sent their relatives to be with us. So it was really cool. And then we went on a three week three week honeymoon and all over the place out there and saw the mountains and the snow and trees and beautiful everything. And came back home and made a little house out of a cute little we always have to we pick houses that we always have to redo <laughs> everything in them. So we worked on that, and a year later we had a baby boy, mm -hmm. and then we had a baby boy again about three years after, or two years after that, and then Taylor came along, our last one. So we have four children. All these kids are wonderful. They're active in the gospel. They're married and have kids of their own, except for Taylor. She was out in BYU graduated, went to went on a mission, lived and worked out there, and really wanted to be with her family again. So she's back home with us, living with us, which is fine. We love it that way. We have 12 grandchildren, five great-grands, and all of our kids, our four kids served a mission in the church. So we'll, we'll, Terry and I have had a wonderful life. It's, it's all because of the church. It's all because of what Heavenly Father gave us, and He gave us each other. 
been wonderful. We are the, we have an arranged marriage. God arranged for us to be married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, talking about the kids, um, all four of them served a mission. Keisha served an American Sign Language mission, and she spent 14 months in Tempe, Arizona, then spent four months in Lansing, Michigan. Then um, she came home and uh, spent about a month here, then went back out west to Arizona, uh, met her husband, and uh, they got married in the Mesa Temple, is that right? And uh, then Jonathan, he served a mission in Puebla, Mexico, speaking Spanish. He still keeps up with Spanish and adds to his vocabulary today. Um, he's now... Well, let's back up. Keisha still does sign language in the temple as a temple worker. Her husband is a professional interpreter. He's been on TV with the governor of Georgia. Um, he goes all over the place signing and translating for the deaf. Um, they, Keisha and Aaron, own a farm in uh, Rome, Georgia, uh, where they raise their two kids and goats and one horse and chickens and ducks and uh, what else? goats. They have goats too. Jonathan is a partner in a company that uh, has five temp service offices throughout northwest Georgia. Um, he, his mission was to Pueblo, Mexico, Spanish speaking. Um, he, they've been married what? 15? 15 years? 16. 16 years. 16 years. Uh, 16. Our youngest son, Brant, had served a mission in Rio de Janeiro, Portuguese speaking. Uh, he is now the chief financial officer for the law enforcement retirement funds of Georgia. And uh, I, went to, I asked him just recently, I said, what's the next step for you? He said, if I stay here the rest of my life, I'll be happy. So he likes his job and it's, uh, it's doing him well. He's got three, uh, married with three children. Uh, our youngest daughter, Taylor, lives with us. She started out as a purchasing agent for American Steel Technology in, uh, not, not American, Advanced Steel Technology in Rome, uh, east side of Rome. And uh, she's been promoted to the head of the accounting department. And so she's got, looking at a pretty good future. Uh, she still we, wants to get married. Children. We have been very blessed. Uh, I can see the Lord's hand in my life even before I joined the church. Uh, not being sent to Vietnam had to be one of the, you know, turning points uh, for me. Um, having, we, I don't think I talked too much about my career. Um, I started out in data processing, went in, was for seven years, was a plaster shop foreman for Harbison Walker here. Then I went back into computers at Dalton Service. I bugged them until they gave me a job. And my job was to write technical manuals and teach other people how to use software that they had developed. Well, you can only get so far teaching other people how to use uh, software. And I had an employment specialist tell me this. He said, you've got to do something, something different. You can't just be a teacher of computer stuff. So one day, uh, a friend of mine who was LDS 
said he and his brother were starting a company and they wanted me to work six months for, for them. It would be a temporary job. And I was doing documentation again, tech writing technical manuals. And uh, so when that job ended, they started to work with a company down in Johns Creek uh, in the Norcross area. And they put in a good word for me and I got hired by World Financial Group. And at, at this time, Mike Anderson said to me, Terry, if you will learn one programming language, SQL, structured query language, that that, that will give you a good, good start in a, and a better earning potential. And so I taught myself how to, how to do this, played around with it a little bit. And then uh, for 10 years, all I did was pull data, <coughs> excuse me, pull data out of the database, just write reports. Then about that time, at the end of the 10 years, I was released as a branch president. And I thought, you know what? I probably need to do something about my career. So I dusted off my resume and got help from uh, LDS Employment Services, which no longer exists in uh, Tucker, Georgia. And um, I put my resume out there on the internet. And one day I, got, I saw an email come across about a company in Chattanooga that was looking for someone with SQL experience. So I go out to the parking lot from where I'm working and sit in the car and call and say, what else do you need besides SQL? And they said, that's all we need. I said, I'll be there for an interview if you don't mind. He said, okay. So I go up to Chattanooga, um, show up in my suit. They're all sitting around in their blue jeans and they inter start interviewing me in the break room. The owner of the company comes in and says, what are y'all doing? He says, well, we're interviewing this guy for a, for a job here. He said, hiring. Just like that. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. So they hired me. And I, I asked for $10,000 more a year. Well, what I didn't know was that the boss is picking up the whole tab for my health insurance. So I'm starting, I'm bringing home 50% more than I was making in Atlanta. And I get to work from home three days a week, drive into the office in Chattanooga two days a week. So that lasted for 10 years. I was a week shy of my 71st birthday when I said, that's it, I've had enough, I'm retiring. They said, can you stick around for two weeks? I said, sure. They said, can you stick around for four weeks? I said, yeah. How about six weeks? I said, sure, I'll do it. So I trained my replacement and, uh, and left and never looked back. And it's, I can highly recommend retirement to anyone that wants to do that. The first day of college at Ole Miss, I met a man named Steve Weston. He, the Ole Miss, on his Navy ROTC list, Ole Miss was way down the list, but it was the only place that had a vacancy. So here's a guy from Vermont and a guy from Biloxi, Mississippi that meet and, and we become best friends. We just visited him. We've known each other for 59 years. He's retired commander in the reserves of the Navy and a uh, really neat guy. Well, after our freshman year, he invites me to go to Vermont before our Navy cruise and work with him and his father doing renovations of, of houses and building hay wagons and all kinds of stuff with, you know, carpentry. And that's where I developed my desire to work with wood. And 
I've done that all my life. Um, I have a shop in the basement. I enjoy doing that. I've built uh, goat stanchions, goat feeders, chicken coops, um, feeding bins. Uh, we've, we've built rooms in the basement that was completely nothing but studs running down the middle of the, of the basement with, with the help of my son, Bram. Um, so I really enjoy, to this day, woodworking. And the other thing I enjoy is working outside, making the yard look better. Uh, we still got a long way to go, but uh, but I get a kick out of that. Yeah. I could see that from reading the Book of Mormon, that was my first testimony. The Book of Mormon is the Word of God. I, I know that because of the feelings I felt were so strong and so different from anything else I had experienced in my life prior to that time that I knew that this was what I was supposed to do. And... I'll tell you a story that I don't normally tell to other people. And that is one night while I was reading the Book of Mormon at that Harvest and Walker plant here in Calhoun, I was headed from the plant to the break room to get a soda. And I said, Heavenly, I, to my own self, not to anybody else, there was no one around that could hear my thoughts or you know, see what I was doing. I was walking along and I said, Heavenly Father, if I'm supposed to join this church, I would like to see a shooting star right there, right now. And I just moved my hand up like that. These people would have thought I'm crazy if they were seeing me walk along and then all of a sudden my hand goes like that. And there goes a shooting star, exactly the way I pointed out. And I thought, okay, this is it. Um, And I think I mentioned before that I can see the hand of the Lord working in my life throughout my life. Not now that I look back on it, you know, 2020 vision. Um, just things lined up. There's there's a a plan to this life, you know, and as as long as I can listen and do what the Lord wants me to do, I'll do it. But you know, Revelation is such a, it can be different things at different times. Um, I have a feeling that some of the things that I get involved with in my life are my own idea, but sometimes you can't sort your own ideas from the Lord's ideas. And that, that there, there are signs that follow believers that, you know, this was supposed to work out this way. You know, it wasn't, take for instance, orders to Vietnam. I was ready to go, but could I have done any good? I really seriously doubt it. And that's why I think the Lord's hand was involved in that. I look at my father's life, shot down over France, and how... He escaped while some of his crew members died and some of his crew members got picked up by the Germans and spent time in a prisoner of war camp. They, the Lord saved my, my father.
But yeah, we, we have been... My life has not been... You know, the worst thing I've had to go through in my life is a divorce. That's the absolute worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and I was over that after six months. I, there, was a, there was a time where I said, I've got to move on. You know, you can't just wallow in guilt for six months and not have anything to show for it. Um, things started changing when I started accepting 50% of the blame instead of 100% of the blame. I guess it would, it would have started with reading the Book of Mormon. And uh, oddly enough, the first calling I had in the church, the bishop called me to be a seminary teacher. Here I was, brand new. And yet, back in those days, the seminary program was different. I would leave Calhoun on Tuesday night, go to Adairsville, pick up a couple of boys, drive to Rome in Brother Thompson's house and talk about the history of the church and uh, Doctrine and Covenants and then drop them off in Adairsville and come back home. And I did it once a week. And that was, that was my job. But I learned a lot about the church and the church's history from, from being given that calling. And then, you know, I've had practically every calling except state callings. Uh, well, I had yeah. a couple of those. <laughs> I was on the high council uh, yeah. for a while. State young men. But uh, just anything we've gotten involved in, you could see that there's a room for growth, uh, some blessings, you know, that, that come along. I mean, you know, if, if there are blessings that the Lord can give you that are priceless. There are things that the Lord can give you that money cannot buy. You can't get them any other way other than having faith in Jesus Christ and knowing that we have a Father in Heaven that really cares about our welfare and our success in this life. Um, being, being of an older age now, I take great comfort in the peace that comes from knowing that this is all going to work out okay, regardless of inflation or depression or recession or lack of job or uh, family problems, it's all going to be okay one day. And uh, I, I really believe that I put too much energy in fear of the future. That there are, that there, there is a plan and if you stick to the plan, like the Book of Mormon says over and over again, if you keep the commandments, you will prosper in the land. And when prosper, by prosper, I don't mean necessarily just financial. I mean every other way. Well, there, there are a number of things. First of all, the, the Calhoun branch is, has watched us grow, not only as, a, as an individual, as a family, but being small, you know, we're sort of like a proving ground. We, we have, over the years, over the last 42 years, our membership in the church, we've seen people come into the branch 
get significant callings that they might have not felt up to and then leave and go elsewhere and grow some more. And I, I see the Calhoun branch and the Calhoun Lord as a training place because of our size, because we're so small, people get to do heavy lifting. They get to be really responsible for something. Um, the other thing I would say about the Calhoun branch is that uh, and Ward is that we have always had this sort of feeling that we're semi-rural here. We're not big city folks. We take care of one another. Um, we may not all live in big mansions, but you know we're we're here for the hard work, the the work that the Lord wants us to do, which sometimes is glamorous and sometimes is not glamorous. Uh, but uh, one of the things I felt when I was called as the branch president was that the people in the ward were on my side. They wanted, I, I just had this feeling that they wanted me to succeed in that calling. And I hope that they could see that I love them back for for giving me the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about bishops and branch presidents as being ordinary men called extraordinary callings. And I, I believe that. Um, everybody has a different management style, but as long as the Lord is guiding us, we're going to do all right. Um, so, yeah, the... The love within the war, brother, brother Hambrick uh, extols that love from the rooftop, and and he's right. He's absolutely right. We're we're close knit, small group of of saints trying to figure out what, you know how we can overcome the difficulties that lie ahead. I have a testimony that the Lord's always helped me. I expect him to continue to help me and my family. Well, a couple of things. <clears throat> First of all, regardless of how many descendants we have, I love all of them. And the reason I love them is because I love my ancestors. What little I know about my ancestors, they were hardworking folks. They believed in the Lord. They, for the most part, you know, there's probably a few ne'er-do-wells in the Barlow family, but for the most part, hardworking, solid individuals just trying to make the best out of life that they could. And uh, the good news is that we have a Savior that's made sure that when we die, we will live forever. Uh, but you got to go through that first. Uh, you got to I find that a paradox that you have to die before you can live forever. Uh, but uh, what, a, what a great future and a great adventure we have ahead of us. If I were talking to three generations, four generations from now, I would say stay in the church. Don't do anything to jeopardize your membership in this church. You'll be so much better off with it than you will be without it. Well, that brings us to a close for this week's podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed the personal history and stories presented today. And most of all, I hope it has brought you closer to another member of our ward.